You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. All the girls are complicated. Everyone is precious too, and you might get lucky if you do. Oh, you might get lucky if you do. Find the one that makes you laugh. Find the one that takes your breath where you won't get everything that you want. Oh, but you'll need one to don't apart. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 188 of the Christian Feminist Podcast on Greta Gerwig's Barbie. I'm Christina Bieber Lake, and with me today are Victoria and Sarah. Hello, Victoria and Sarah. Hi. Hello. So, if we could just introduce ourselves for anybody who might be new for the pro to the program. So, uh, Victoria, why don't you get us started? Sure. Hi, everyone. I am Victoria Reynolds Farmer. I have a PhD in literature and gender and sexuality studies from Florida State. I live in a suburb of Atlanta with my husband, Michael Farmer, of the Christian Humanist Podcast, and our two birds, Jerry and Veronica, and uh, some of my hobbies include, other than this podcast, include uh, writing, reading, and playing the ukulele, and uh, by day I work for a market research firm as a community engagement manager. Great, thanks. How about you, Sarah? Hi, I'm Sarah Thomas. I live around the corner from Victoria in a suburb of Metro Atlanta. I have a PhD in English literature with concentrations in 18th century uh, British literature and uh, drama with a particular focus. By day, I am a high school English teacher at one of the area parochial high schools. And in the evenings, or when I am not teaching, I am reading, writing, crocheting, and trying to keep my dogs from eating all of the squirrels in the backyard. Oh, we have a dog story to tell about our dog and a skunk, So, but that's for a later day. Um, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. I wish I lived around the corner from y'all. I used to live in Atlanta. That's where I got my Ph.D., but I might as well live in Atlanta because it's going to be 100 degrees here in the Chicago area, which is really unfair for anybody who has to put up with the winter to have to have that. But um, I'm starting my 25th year at Wheaton College teaching English, so been around the block a few times, and I'm really excited to be talking about this film today. Also, I should say I'm married to an Anglican priest, and um, yeah, we live here with our son. Okay, so let's go party. Uh, Life in plastic, it's fantastic. Um, I wanted to say something about why I chose this. Um, Not the main reason being it was just a complete sensation, and I I couldn't believe how much I loved the film and couldn't wait to hear what other people had to say about it. And it's just been such a splash and so many interesting things going on that we just had to do a show on it. So here we are. So I thought that we would just start the whole conversation by just, just what was your experience going to the film like, uh, and then just talk about your experience with Barbies, whatever you all feel like talking about, just to start us off. Um, okay, I can start. 
Um, I will say Sarah and I actually went to see the movie together, um, which was was really fun. Um, I know one of the things that has made this movie such a cultural touchstone is that it is very much um, an event. Women are going in big groups. Um, they're all wearing pink. Uh, we wore pink outfits, but they were not as elaborate as some people's. Um, you know, people are taking pictures um, in the giant plastic Barbie box and all of that. There are themed cocktails at the concession stand. <laughs> um, it's it's very much, uh, very much an event. Uh I, I think we had fun together. Um, I, I don't think I would have enjoyed it as much um, had I seen it with a different person. I think Sarah and I have very similar sensibilities, so the, the conversation on the way home was really cool, um, but we'll get into that in a minute. Um, but in terms of Barbie memories, um, I... I played with Barbies when I was a kid. I mean, I think most of us probably did. Um, not a lot. I of... did not, for the record. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, did you have them or or no? No, I was classic tomboy. I had nothing to do with dolls of any size, shape, form. Oh, okay. So. Um, I, I had Barbies um, and I played with them... I didn't play with them a ton. I My favorite thing, I think, other than just, like, changing their clothes, I was really into the outfits, though I was not into the shoes. I was terrified of high heels until, I mean, not quite until I started wearing them, but I was terrified of them for several years, partly because I thought they were going to make my feet stick in a slanted position, like Barbie feet. Um, so, uh, so that's classic. That's awesome. The, the, the idea that that, like her feet falling flat are kind of part of her existential crisis that really resonated with, with me. Um, but, but kind of in reverse. Um, but I, I think I played with my Barbies in a way a lot of people did. Like I, I cut their hair and dyed it with Kool-Aid. Um, I stuck one in a microwave once. Uh, my Barbies had a lot... (laughs) had a lot of inappropriate assignations with my brother's GI Joes. Um, I, I had, a, <laughs> I, I, and the, like the real GI Joes, not the eighties tiny ones. My brother is 15 years older than me. So I had an original seventies GI Joe that was like the right size. Um, which is, oh, impo- that's sweet. which is important somehow. I don't know. Uh, and I had a kin, but I never played with him because, as I'm sure we will discuss, um, kin is boring and dumb, and no one likes him. <laughs> well, you guys went together to the film. I also went with my writing group, so, you know, all of us academics, and it was, yeah, it completely changed my experience as well of the film. Um, I did not wear pink. I do not wear pink. Um and I did not play with Barbies, but uh, but I couldn't wait to see the film because of Greta Gerwig, basically. So what about you, Sarah? Did you play with Barbies growing up? Oh, yes, I did. I definitely played with Barbies. I was I remember the Christmas that I got Barbie's dream house. My sister, who is I have two younger sisters and the one who is three years younger than me, got the three-story townhome with the elevator a few years after I got the pink two-story mansion 
option Ooh. that had the uh, that that had the sort of like rooftop patio thing on it. Um, and the, I the wanted porch that one. I wanted yes. that one. I had the townhouse with the elevator, which we'll talk more about my horrible crisis with my townhouse elevator in a minute. But go ahead, Sarah. Mm. Yes. So I had, yeah, I had the two story, the two story pink Barbie mansion. I remember the Christmas I got it. It had the winding staircase and everything. I did not have the pink Corvette. My sister had the pink Corvette. I had the red Ferrari. Barbie had a red Ferrari and it was the day to night Barbie. So when Margot Robbie was walking around at one of those film premieres in the day to night Barbie costume, I got so excited because that was my Barbie. Wow. That was my Barbie wow. with, the, I, with the cap toe pumps I and had the that skirt one too. That, out. that was my favorite Barbie outfit ever. The day to night outfit. Yeah. I was, was also very excited about that premiere outfit. Like, Oh, somebody was, knows what's up. Yes. It was so great. I did have a Ken. I liked my Ken doll. Um, my Barbies, I guess, on this side of, you know, on, on this side of playing with them, I played with them for a long time, actually, until I moved into my American girl phase and sort of got into the like historic reenactment things. But Barbies for me were, um, were a way to play at grown up in a way that combined things from my childhood that, uh, that I understood, like my Ken doll, I never knew what he did for a living, but Barbie and Ken were definitely together. Um, I did not have the advantage of any GI Joes lying around the house cause I'm the oldest of three girls. Uh, but I did have a Ken and my Ken looked a little bit like Prince Philip from the animated sleeping beauty who I low key had a crush on when I was very young. So, um, <laughs> So my Ken was uh, like a 3D, you know, like a 3D version of, you know, my first animated crush. Um, they they were together. They got married at one point. Um, I had another Barbie who came with uh, fraternal boy-girl twins, like, like twin toddlers. And so they got to be a family. Um, and then when I got a little bit older, I might I might have continued to play with Barbies a little longer than a number of my friends did. I think that was partly because, again, as the oldest of three girls, as my sisters started to play with them, I continued to play with Barbies with them. So it became uh, so my play shifted in the sense that it became less about what how I was playing and the fact that I was playing with my Barbies and we would come up with these elaborate soap opera storylines. My mom's been a young and the restless fans for my entire life. So, you know, we would play out soap opera style, you know, complex storylines, but it was also a way for me to, to spend time with them so that they could play. And um, it sounds similar to Greta Gerwig's story as well. I don't know. Did you read her sort of description of that? She played longer with them as well. Yes, I did notice that. And I, I thought about that because I thought, yeah, I played with a lot of those things longer than most of my friends did. Um, and I think I think some of that, some of it, maybe not all of it, but some of it has to do with the fact that I did have younger sisters who were still playing. And a part of me, I think, on some level wanted to keep that alive for them. Um, you know, sort yes, of keep, yes. right. Keep that experience for them. Um, going to the movie was, was fabulous. Uh, Victoria, you were so kind there. I'm not sure that I would have wanted to see it with, um, anybody else, uh, that, 
you know, that I otherwise spend time with uh, here in Atlanta. Um, and it was fun to see so many groups of women watching the movie. And there were, uh, yes, Victoria and I laughed at a couple of the same things. We'll talk in a, in a little bit later in the episode about the moment where I cackled so loudly that I startled the young women sitting three seats over from us. They jumped in their chairs when I squawked out loud. <laughs> Um, and I continued to laugh yeah, about that moment. but there was something for yeah. different generations. That was what was so interesting to me, right? There are generations mm-hmm. of women and women with their daughters. And, you know, and it, and it just hit on all of those. It fired on all those cylinders, which is a remarkable achievement, right? Appealing to all these different generations of women. I just found that stunning. And I yes. mean, I, you know, Victoria said something along the lines of they, they've figured something out. And, and yes, they really have, you know, and I think that's uh, Greta Gerwig. And so I just want to start out by just mentioning a little bit of what I know about. I mean, I would definitely recommend that New York Times article that described the genesis of the project. And it was actually very, um, interestingly enough, favorable toward Faith and her um, Greta Gerwig's upbringing in the faith. And so I'm sure that's something that will come up. But she conceived of the film during COVID and apparently just decided, partly because of COVID, just to go for it, to to do whatever she wanted. Like, I'm just going to have this, you know, beginning of the, uh, the 2001 Space Odyssey and have the girls, you know, smashing their baby dolls. And it just, it's like, whatever she thought of doing, she just did it. And so she co-wrote it with Noah Baumbach, and she said about this in an interview, and I'll just quote this, and then we'll get to the film. She said, I was originally meant to just write it with Noah, and then we finished the script, and that was the thing that made me want to direct it. It felt so clear to me, if they didn't want to make that version, I didn't need to make it. Margot, as the producer and star, was really the first person to line up and say, I want to do it her way. And then as we started adding collaborators and gathering more cast, suddenly there was a large number of people who were excited to do something that was this, excuse the pun, out of the box. <laughs> and I just love that quote so much. And and everyone's just like, how did she get away with that? How did she get away with that? And she got away with it and made, and the film made $162 million in its first weekend. So I think it's fair to say it's really hit a nerve. And so one of the things, a nerve, a fun, a pink nerve, a fun pink nerve. You know what I'm saying? It made us laugh. It made us think. So let's just dive in on, uh, on Greta Gerwig. How about um, her saying she's doing the thing and subverting the thing? I want to know what you guys think she's meaning by saying I'm doing the thing and I'm subverting the thing and questions associated with that. So who would like to take that on? I can take a preliminary swing at that. I, um, oh, quick digression. I had one more Barbie story from growing up um, that I think might actually tie into doing the thing and subverting the thing. My mom had one of the original Barbies. And she kept it. No way. Yes. She had one of one of the very, very early editions. In fact, another Margot Robbie movie premiere day, uh, dress, the black one, the black dress with the mermaid skirt on it that was all black sequins. That was the dress that my uh, mom's Barbie came in or came with wow. in a special box. But the dress was so fragile. Like if you picked it up, it just started shedding everywhere. So we were that one 
we weren't really allowed to play with as vigorously as we might otherwise because it was a collector's, you know, well, mostly because the dress was so fragile, it would fall apart and black glitter would get everywhere. Um, but it was something that, you know, we could take out of the box, take out of its little, its special blue case with the, you know, the mid-century iconography on it um, and look at, but I never, I never wanted to play with it as much because it, it seemed so special, you know, whereas mine could, you know, do splits and things like that. I never cut their hair or dyed it or anything like that, but, uh, but I remember my mom's very early very early Barbie. Um, and so when Gerwig is talking about doing the thing and subverting the thing, um, I think that um, I think that I would ag agree with you, Christina, that she's, uh, you know, appealing to consumer culture and hype. You know, she's making a movie that is part of, I think, uh, in the New York Times piece is described as something that Mattel wanted. Right. Or that Mattel wants. Um mm -hmm but at the same time is using this opportunity to ask questions about uh, consumer culture and hype and, you know, the, the creating of, you know, the creation of a product that hits a cultural nerve and then kind of becomes, if not a, a victim, maybe the enemy of its own success. Um, and so then has to navigate those challenges. And, um, and so I found that really fascinating because on a, on an initial surface level, it seems like the movie's trying not to take itself too seriously, but at other moments in the movie seems to be asking salient questions about, um, about the purpose of dolls, the purpose of play the purpose of specifically of play when it comes to uh, girlhood and contemplating the process of growing up in a way that I think has the potential to be very compelling. And it's also like many, if not all, I think I could probably say all of Greta Gerwig's movies. Um, it's also got something really um, intense and, varied and interesting to say about the relationship between mothers and daughters. Um, yes. Which is, I, I think, as you've said, Sarah, um, central to a lot of people's um, kind of arrival at Barbie dolls. Um, my mom had the original Barbie with the black and white striped bathing suit, um, but she got rid of it before I was born. And like every time I played with my Barbies, she told me how terrible she felt that she got rid of it and couldn't pass it down to me. It was like a thing that she was really, oh, really? upset about. Yeah. The fact that she got, did she say why she got rid of it? I, I think just like, you know, she didn't save it I've because she didn't it. save. Yeah. Like, I, I don't think she was thinking at the time, like, Oh, this is going to be, you know, something that's important that I passed down. I think she was like, it's a doll and I don't play with it anymore. Uh-huh. Or she wasn't like, I'm destroying this because it makes me feel bad about my body image. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I don't think so. Okay. Interesting. Well, so, um, what, what did you guys think about, um, what did you learn about that Greta Gerwig piece or, or um, any ideas come out of that that were interesting to you that you had thought about before? I want to talk about faith. Um, I, yes. I, I know I mentioned um, 
all Greta Gerwig movies are are about mothers and daughters. Um, they're they're also kind of in a, to a certain degree all about faith and or religion. Um, she is vocal in a lot of yes. interviews, um, talking about her experiences in Catholic schools, and um, she. I, I can't find the place in the New York Times article, but she essentially uh, implies that Barbie Land is a pre-lapsarian space, that there is no um, shame or fear, and it, it's very a, very like um, Eden before the fall. And uh, I, I think that's really interesting that, um, let's see, where is the quote? Uh, I keep thinking, Gerwig explained, humans are the people that make dolls and then get mad at the dolls. We create them, and then they create us, and we recreate them, and they recreate us. We're in constant conversation with inanimate objects. Um, so that's that's very much about the nature of creation. And also when you think about um, my favorite performance in the film, the um, Rhea Perlman as Ruth Handler uh, performance, when you think Mm -hmm. about her Mm -hmm. as the creator of the doll um, and everything she says about, like, how she took this doll that was essentially a joke on a sex doll and turned her into a proto-feminist icon that, you know, had her own house as a single woman before real American women were able to put their names on deeds. Like, that is such an enormous deal um, that I think yes. society in general does not typically make an enormous deal of. Um, yes. And I I did have a problem with one thing that Ruth Handler said, but I don't, I don't, I'm talking too much right now, so we can, we can get to that later. Sarah, do you have some thoughts about what uh, Victoria is just talking about? I did. Um, and I had, uh, Victoria and I had talked about uh, about the idea of Barbie Land as an idealized or a, a a sort of pre-lapsarian moment, and I think what happened for me as I was watching the movie, I thought about that idea, and then I think as I was watching, I kept looking for the movie to be an allegory. Or more directly allegorical, it it does if that makes sense, like a, a sort of fully realized, concrete one-to-one relationship. And so then my thought yeah. was like when like the idea of mortality, right, enters stereotypical Barbie's sort of realm of of awareness. I don't know, do we call it consciousness? You know, when she gets cellulite and her feet start to fall, I was trying to think about the source of of that. So, but the source of that is the play that the human connected with her stereotypical Barbie existence, right, is experiencing. So then does that like does that relationship suggest temptation or just fallenness? And I think like I sort of got lost in the weeds as I was watching the movie sort of looking for the places where that would add up. Um, yeah, and, I think so it's I think definitely, I yeah, I think I might've taken it too, too literally, but there were definitely components of it that I thought were really fascinating, particularly in the idea that once Barbie and Ken go to the real world, they do come back to Barbie land. Yes. Yeah. 
I think it, I think it's about consciousness. I mean, you said it might be about. I really think it is about developing consciousness. Um, in in other words, um, so much of the film is about like the Barbies losing their higher consciousness and then regaining it back, kind of thing. Um, after the Kens try to take over, you know, and so I, if it's a fall, I think it's a fall from innocence to experience that kind of classic, you know, story line of not really realizing we're naked, not really realizing what's going on here kind of thing. Does that make sense? I, I agree with that, but I also think, um, and everybody, if you would, if you are playing along, get out your CFP bingo cards, uh, because Victoria is about to talk about embodiment. Um, I, Absolutely. I do. We need to talk about embodiment, that great last line of the film, which is one of my favorite of all time last lines of any film. Um, well, I, I wasn't going to go straight there. I'll, I'll let yeah. you go there. But um, so if if cellulite and, and flat feet are in our metaphor, the, the knowledge of good and evil, um, like what what does that mean? Um, I, I mean, I, I do think you can't have human consciousness without consciousness of embodiment. Um, but I, I also think you're right, Sarah, in saying that the metaphor doesn't hold all the way. Um, but I, I do think there is something, even kind of within the universe of the movie, um, that it's kind of too scared to go all in on what embodiment as a Barbie means, because even though there's that one dance scene with um, kind of wider representation of um, of Barbies, and even though you have um, Hari Neff, famous um, trans woman actress uh, as a Barbie, um, most of the physically diverse Barbies, with the exception of... Um, Issa Rae's President Barbie, um, most of the diverse Barbies are only there for a second. Um, the Barbie that I think is um, is wheelchair Barbie and not share a smile Becky, um, she gets like two seconds in the dance scene, and the plus-size Barbie gets two seconds in the dance scene. So there's yes. there's kind of gestures to diversity of embodiment, but there's not a lot of um, there there's not a lot of discussion there. Oh, I said I was going to talk mm-hmm. about um, was going to talk about my my Barbie crisis of faith with the townhouse elevator. So, uh, for my 10th birthday, someone got me a share a smile, Becky, who is the, the wheelchair, the original wheelchair using Barbie, um, which comes out in, uh, 95 or 96. Um, and, uh, I don't, has, have either of you ever seen one of those? No. Um, so the I Andrew- don't. The Outside interesting the presentation in the film, no. Okay. Um, the interesting thing about Becky is that she actually has more range of motion than an able-bodied Barbie, if that is a thing I should say, um, because she doesn't have hinges. Her arms and legs are actually soft, and they um, move around because she has to be able to perch um, in the wheelchair. 
but um and and this has been remedied now um but at the time when I got her her wheelchair was too big to fit um in the townhouse elevator the townhouse was not ADA compliant um and I got so upset <laughs> I got so upset That's it, awesome. it is now by the way um wheelchair using yeah. Barbie now oh, yeah. fits in the dreamhouse elevator which is great for little okay. girls now but I'm still salty about it um of course I uh I threw share a smile Becky in the dumpster behind my house and that is when I stopped playing with Barbies Wow, I was that is like, so interesting. I was fully done. Like, it was like, oh, Barbie doesn't care about me and how I see myself. Like, I'm out. Yeah, and see, that's what's so interesting about the film is that it absolutely identifies it. You said something like that it's a nod toward this. Well, yeah, that's what the toy industry is, right? It's like a nod toward diversity. It's a nod toward this, but it's not a full representation. It's plastic. It's fake. It's simulacra, right? And to me, what's so great about this is that they're showing that all of that view that we have of the uh, is a complete construct. So I want to know what you guys thought about that. Did you, did you buy my argument that this is like showing the, the construction of the meaning of gender difference and of, of our bodies and, and everything in plastic, which make, to me is just hilarious. Like it's literally in plastic, you know, like a, it's a kind of a Gnostic vision of, of the body is not really mattering ultimately, which I don't think is right. I'm, 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 and I think that Greta Gerwig is making the argument that it is, that it is not right, you know, uh, to view the body that way. I, I buy your argument. I, but that kind of tone, that like very have your cake and eat it too kind of uh, tone of the film is where it started to lose me. I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Sarah, but I, I think uh, what I said on the way home was, um, it, if I have a problem with this movie, it's that it feels a little too much like graduate school. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, I think that's I right. Um, and I think at the time I was also thinking, I, I walked into the movie with, like with my graduate school hat on, if that makes sense. Um, so Wait, is that an actual hat, Sarah? Right, I know. <laughs> yes, it is. It is, as a matter of fact, you know, a, a fashion item. But, uh, but no, I did not actually wear it to the party. I was wearing my uh, my metaphorical grad school hat. So, like, I was trying to analyze all of the things, um, and and yeah, I. I think that I think what I came away with was that the the movie is pointing out the you know is pointing out constructions or or construct is again pointing out the things that can happen when we start to play with items but then I started down sort of my own rabbit hole about well what is the purpose of play um you know, especially yeah, that's children. not a rabbit hole. Yeah. You know, like sort of like what is the purpose of play? Is is play? Are there aspects of play that are intended to be prescriptive? Are uh, is play supposed to be descriptive? Is play supposed to be aspirational? 
Um, yes. You know, and, and so I started thinking about all of those questions and with all of that in mind, then I was thinking, well, what does that mean for some of the criticisms leveled, you know, that are leveled against a toy like Barbie once Barbie becomes sort of more than a toy and becomes a cultural phenomenon. And that's where, that's where I started wondering, is the movie trying to be kind of like Barbie herself, all things to all viewers? Yeah, I totally know what you're saying there. I think there's a, there's something to be said for that. It is. And I think that's why the the statement I'm doing the thing and subverting the thing makes so much sense to me. You know, I am appealing to this thing that, and in other words, not slapping people for liking Barbies, right? <laughs> you know, she she's totally fine with that because yes, I think that's right. She was fine with it herself. She played with them longer than most people, and you know, and and she's not some kind of like angry feminist. Well, but and she's that, also yeah. Go ahead. That's even in the marketing of the film. Um, Absolutely. The the tagline was. If you love Barbie, this movie is for you. If you hate Barbie, yes. this movie is for you. Yes. So by now, I think it's, you know, it's trying to be all things to all people is kind of right on the tin there. Yeah, and 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 to me that makes the movie not, you know, how certain things if you try to be all things to all people just don't work. Somehow this actually works. And it would be interesting if we could figure out why? I mean, you don't have to agree with me that it actually works, but I just feel like it was a remarkably successful film, um, giving you a lot to talk about, but just also holding it lightly enough. To me, it's satire. Like you can, you know, Sarah, you're talking about allegory and is it an allegory? And it's not a full on allegory because allegories can never be satirical, right? By by definition, almost. You, you know what I mean? It's, they usually don't have a satiric edge to them. Right. Unless, yeah, you know, so you can't be both a pure kind of John Bunyan allegory and a satire at the same time is my point. Um, yes, that yes, that makes sense. I think one of my questions is, um, and this is based on on the instruction that I give to my students. One of the things I try to point out to them is that uh, the, the purpose of satire, whether it's juvenilian in origin or Horatian in origin, right? Is it trying to get us to laugh at ourselves or is it trying to make us angry? You know, are we poking fun at women, you know, or, well, not women, are we poking fun at men and women who are, you know, playing dice games or card games like in The Rape of the Lock, or are we getting people angry by, you know, you know, Jonathan Swift style and a modest proposal? But if we're, um, so if the purpose or one of the purposes of satire, maybe the primary purpose, depending on on the school of thought, is social change then what is the change being advocated for here? And I'm not asking that as a criticism. I'm asking that genuinely. Um, if we're going to take the idea of satire and and look at the movie from that standpoint, what do we think it's trying to change? Well, I, I think you know what I think it's trying to change, which is trying to help people to recognize the sort of male privilege that we just don't even think about because we live inside of. And so if even one boy can be like, oh, I wonder what it'd be like to be Ken, <laughs> right? There, then there's a consciousness shift that could happen. Um, that's what I okay. think is going on there. That um, makes sense. It's like, oh my goodness, in Barbie world, you know, the Kens are 
inessential, the inessential other, the Simone de Beauvoir, you know, inessential other that is just the satellite uh, to the man. And I just don't know how else you can ever get to the understanding, the subject object thing until you actually try to place yourself in the object position. Same with white privilege, you know, try to be understand what white privilege is by trying to understand what it would be to be under the double consciousness kind of construct. And and it's such a serious topic that the movie is, is so brilliant because it makes you laugh while you're doing it. Um, I, th- that's what I found remarkable. And at the same time, it doesn't criticize Barbies, even though it's like, yeah, they've caused this kind of like anatomically impossible body image thing you know but play is important and playing with barbies is important all of those things is not just you don't just throw that out you don't throw the baby out with the barbie right and and i think it it doesn't criticize barbie because because both of those things are true at the same time because it it sees barbie as a symptom of the kind of patriarchal double consciousness that you were talking about and it it also Correct. sees that within that um, patriarchal association is the potential for great um, feminist exploration. I mean, the thing I said about her owning the dream house, the fact that um, Barbie has been president if we had not had, uh, th- though we have not had an actual female president, um, the, the thing that, I don't know if you guys have been watching the... Um, the red carpet interviews, but uh, a frequent question to the cast of the film has been, um, if you could bring one thing back from Barbie land, what would you bring back? And every single actress asked um, said the all-female Supreme Court. So oh, I love that. So I, I, I mean, love I love that so much. I think I I don't know that I love that because I don't like I. Okay, I'll just. Let's, let's, let's go there. Let's do it. Um, I, I think that even though a lot of, there's a lot of positive things here. I agree with you, Christina, that if one boy sees this and says like, oh, men shouldn't just be accessories to women and then connects that to, and oh, women shouldn't just be accessories to men either. Um, that's, that, that's huge and I'm for it. Um, I, I do think people who have been kind of not thinking that hard about the movie have been saying, well, you know, Barbie land is just um, flipping the binary and flipping the binary doesn't do any good. Um, I, I do think that's, that's a bit of a danger, but um, I, I also but I don't think, think the film entertains that. I mean, it, right. if they did, if they took over back over and didn't do anything to help the Kens, then I would agree with that. Okay. But I don't think that's what happens at the end of the film. Yeah, that's that's fair. You know, I mean, it's not that they went back to full equality. You know, I had um, or went to full equality like there would be in Eden or whatever. They and I had a really long conversation with my friend about it because she was really upset. She thought that 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 they should sort of create the utopia in Barbie land at the end where they're equals. Right. The Barbies and the Kens are equal. And she was really upset that the film didn't do that. And I thought, well, but here's the thing. 
in the real world, once you have that consciousness of like being the other and the men get the consciousness of being the subject and uh, objectifying women, you don't just flip the switch and those things can be fixed overnight. You know, it starts with consciousness, right? And then it has to, you have to go from there. And that's why I, I was just thinking of how funny that Ken with his I'm Knuff shirt and all of that just felt like the confessional mode in poetry. It's just like, you know, I'm developing this consciousness and to really be able to go to a new place, they have to be acknowledged by the Barbies, you know? I, I, also, I, really, I also really loved that his consciousness raising started with a t-shirt because I, I think that... <laughs> You know, we, we can all think of important feminist T-shirts, right? I, I mean, I, I think that uh, Ken being Knuff is not dissimilar from um, a woman's place is in the House and the Senate, right? Or um, a, yes. woman, a woman yes. needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Um, you know, there's, yes. there's a million of them. And, and what they, even though they're silly T-shirts, what they stand for is that emerging consciousness, which is obviously socially and politically important exactly and in serious versions of that would be like the african-americans protesting with signs that say i am a man you know that's the serious analog um to the same kind of thing um recognize me as a man i am a man i am a person you know um it's like the ken saying i'm ken and i'm ken of <laughs> But yeah, consciousness uh, comes at a comes at a cost in a world that's not ready for it, right? Where the Barbies are in charge again, and so I, if you're upset about like I want there to be an all women Supreme Court, I can see if if by that you mean yeah, that's not flipping the binary is not going to be the answer to the problem. Then I'm totally agreeing with you about it. You know, when I said that was awesome, it was more like the, just the idea of women being in power um, and not not being in power was, was just appealing to me, but not like in control as in right. flipping the binary. But I, yes. I mean, I think it's also, it's a Ruth Bader Ginsburg reference, right? I mean, she, she famously very often said, um, hundred percent there. Yeah. There, there will be enough women on the Supreme court when there are nine. So I, I, I think that's, uh, that's an allusion to that as well. But I, I also want to talk about, um, the fact that, Hollywood seems to be missing the point as to why women like this movie and what is important to take away from it. Yeah, go, go. What are you thinking? I think you're right. Go. Um, so I don't know if uh, everyone knows this, but there are something like, is it 24 or 27, 20 something um, more Mattel IP movies coming out um, since Barbie has been such a big success that uh, that Hollywood's wow. takeaway from this has been uh, make more movies about toys when in fact it should be make more movies by, about, and for women. <laughs> like the, the 100% real, agree. The, the real um, reason that this has caught on like wildfire uh, is because we have such deep cultural 
opinions and attachments to Barbie, not just to all toys, but also because Barbie says something to us and for us about what it is to be a woman in the world. And that's the important takeaway here. Not that we want to watch a horror movie about magic eight balls, um, a real thing coming to you next year. Preach it, Victoria. And it's also because this film is made by Greta Gerwig, you know, and she knows what the reason is for people liking Barbies and how Barbie has both opened some of these doors via representation at the most basic level. Here's police Barbie or here's whatever, you know, it matters. It matters. But that's not going to fix all the problems either. And so, yeah, you're right. Like just having movies about toys is missing the entire point. They're just trying to make money. And don't even get, you know, what the source of the excitement is. What are you thinking, Sarah? Um, I I read the the part of uh, one of the articles that we that we discussed. I think it was I think it was somewhere in the New York Times article uh, about Mattel rebranding itself as an IP company um, that sells toys. Um, and with all of the other Mattel properties in the work. And on the one hand, like my, when I first saw that, my first thought was, have you guys not been watching what's been happening at Disney? Um, is that really a model we want to follow? Um, yes. <laughs> like, really, guys? Yes, y'all want yes. to go, yeah, go down that rabbit hole? Okay. Um, and and I think, yeah, I think they they might be partly missing the point. I'm not sure if, uh, if there are other toys that have quite the same, that are going to have quite the same nuance, right? Or if not nuance, that are going to have quite these same, the same level of complexity in terms of cultural associations and touchstones and, um, and even across generations, right? You know, because one of the things that we've been talking about, we talked about Greta Gerwig's work with mothers and daughters, and um, we talked about our own, you know, Victoria and I mentioned our own experiences with Barbies as they relate to our our mother's experiences with Barbies. I'm not sure how, if it's possible to quite replicate what's going on here. And so, yeah, if that's the lesson that Hollywood seems to be taking away, on the one hand, I'm not surprised that that's the lesson that would be taken away. On the other hand, I agree with y'all that I think they might be missing the point. Um, at that point, they might not be getting the joke even. <laughs> they're like the Mattel men in the, in the film, like they're right. And you know, th when you mentioned that, that's one of those things kind of, kind of like I was alluding to earlier when I said that like the movie itself at some moments tries to be all things to all people and does that run the risk? You know, it's kind of a gamble, right? Does it run the risk of not satisfying anybody because it's trying to be all things to all people? Um, and we've talked about that already, but yeah, there's, um, there is something perhaps also satirical, uh, but I found deeply ironic about the Mattel suits, right? The Mattel, Mattel men and the, you know, and the way, yeah. right. And the way they appeared in the movie, um, you know, Will Ferrell's portrayal, certainly, but everybody else, right. Who's on board, who seem to be scrambling after this commercial success and also seem to be kind of missing the point. And, and, and don't you think that Gerwig is laughing at that herself? I, 
I do. I I, I assume so. Yeah. I I think she is. I mean, I the the thing the line that really got me, um, and I can't remember if it was Feral or if it was one of the other um, completely interchangeable um, dudes in black suits from the Mattel boardroom. Um, they're kind of talking about their feminist bona fides, and one of them refers to himself as uh, the nephew of a female aunt. <laughs> like that's the that that's the connection that's so to womanhood that he has. Um, and I yeah. like I thought that was hilarious because like haven't we all um, been? Haven't we all been in that boardroom to one degree or another? Haven't we all sat through? Um, those conversations. Yeah. And so I, I think that, yes, that's hilarious, but I also think that like those dudes in suits are making a ton of money off of this movie. Like they are, they, they they really exist and they are laughing all the way to the bank if they're laughing at themselves. Yep. Yep. And on the maybe other hand, I would be, yeah, maybe I would be more satisfied in the long run if I knew that they were in on the joke. I don't know. I can't I can't decide. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is the risk you always take with satire. Right. Um, and so Gerwig, I just think is so brilliant because we're talking about it right now and people are going and they're talking, you know, and <laughs> it doesn't happen if the film is not made, even though they make a boatload of money on it, you know. So I, I did, there's something so brilliant in the core in that move uh, that I, I just I just am in awe of her ability to do this. Yeah, I mean I I agree with you. I I really liked the movie, even though there were parts of it that I found problematic. Um, I mostly like how weird it is. Like this is I love how weird it is. Th- this is a movie that has. Uh, that has on its soundtrack um, a ramp rap sampled version of Barbie Girl and also uh, the Indigo Girls Closer to Fine for some reason, um, which is not, by the way, a dig at the Indigo Girls. As any native Georgian feminist will tell you, I love the Indigo Girls. Just like, is there a reason I for them the to Girls too. be in this movie? It's just, it's a weird I think choice. So. Yeah, I, think it's I mean, I, it's feminist. They're feminists, right? They're the of course, ones who raised consciousness for no. women about yeah. Obviously, I know that. I'm just saying, like, it's a weird choice, like musically for the soundtrack. It comes out of nowhere. Okay, yeah. Um, no, I mean, the lyrics of "Closer to Fine" are about consciousness raising and individually rooted identity. No, of course, yeah. it's of course it's appropriate mm-hmm. as a song. Um, just like, could anybody have said that? that was going to be on this soundtrack. No, not no. before we all saw it in the trailer. No. And could anybody have said that they would start out with a reference to 2001, a space odyssey? No, you know, it's like, it's weird. It's full yeah. of weird stuff. It is I think that, strange. I think that weird Barbie is Daryl Hannah from Blade Runner completely. Like it was just like, that's what yeah. that is. And I don't know if you guys know Blade Runner, but yeah. you know, flipping around with that weird hair. Yeah, also the hair, she's an android. You know, yeah. it's like, this is, this is freaking brilliant. And the, the movie was just filled with these little Easter egg type references that I just thought, 
were just so smart. And it's like, I wanted to see it again just to look, but it, it's over the top too. So it's like almost yeah. too much. So I didn't want to see it again. It, it is very over did. the top. There, there is a golden age musical style dream ballet, uh, which was definitely my, my favorite part of the movie. Talk oh. on. I know you like that stuff. So, oh, yeah. so what, what did you like about it? Uh, Ken's dream ballet. Um, I liked that part of his kind of anti-patriarchal um, awakening happens in the context of the golden age American musical. Like it's, it's a very kind of gender defying cool. genre defying thing. Um, also, I'm, I'm going to go too deep now. Sorry, everybody who does not like musicals as much as me. Um, but in the dream ballet. I got <laughs> Thank you. Um, appreciate your support, Sarah. Uh, in the section that is the dream ballet, there are references to lots of musicals. Um, there's choreography from not only um, Oklahoma, which is, of course, the uh, musical that kind of invents the dream ballet as a subgenre for the popular consciousness, but there's also um, Grease, which of course is part of, you know, uh, dudes being dudes, but also dancing. Um, there's West Side Story, which does the same thing. Uh, there's choreography from Chicago and a chorus line, um, which is about dancers as dancers, which is interesting when you think about Ryan Gosling, trained dancer who got his start on the Mickey Mouse Club um, as a kid. And I think there's a bit of sweet charity too, but I'm not sure if I caught that one or not. But definitely the other four or five, however many I just named, are there. Um, and it's it's so, it's like playing with gender and this weird, like, postmodern construction of popular culture. I don't know. I'm not sure what it was doing, but also I love it. Mm -hmm. It's definitely postmodern. That mixture of genres and those references, the intertextuality, all of that. Absolutely. Well, and I, I, I was, I don't even know musicals, but I was aware of that was going on and I loved it. Yeah. I didn't pick up as much of it as, as Victoria did, but I, I loved, I loved the dance sequence and, you know, when we talk about genre mixing and things like that, and we've been talking about the the soundtrack, we talked about, you know, the Indigo Girls on the soundtrack and, of course, Closer to Fine, you know, and how it lyrically makes sense for the movie, but also given how much of the other soundtrack sounds very different. Um, I think the one of the funniest moments for me was the Matchbox 20 sequence, the running gag about the song Push. Um, was hilarious was was hilarious for me and that was the moment at which I cackled loud enough that I made the people the poor people sitting two seats over like jump in their seats and stare at me uh you laughed me, the moment it happened was when whichever <laughs> kin it was said let me play guitar at you that was what did it and I oh, like I and, laughed out loud at that too and I'm I'm with you I have I have definitely been on dates where guitar has been played at me so like you know it's oh, yeah. uh, it's understandable oh, that was a great moment that was a great moment in the film. Yes, and like all like all of the Kins playing all of the guitars at and it was it was that pronoun or uh, not that pronoun that preposition at and yes, Victoria tested that's when I lost it and 
it was, oh my goodness, it was, it was golden. And yes, I also have been on the receiving end of being sung at. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. It's like, <laughs> we should be just sitting at your feet. Oh, glorious man. Thank you for singing at me. It's, you know, but it's really about you. It's not really about me. Oh, <laughs> so, man. It's oh, so it was, good. It's so painful. It was so, oh, wow. I was still laughing about it 24 hours later. Oh, I like, know. I was washing, like, I was washing dishes at the kitchen sink the next morning and just, and just started laughing again. Um, oh, so brilliant. Well, we're, right. we are running up on time. So what other things did you find like that that you want to talk about before we close up here? Like, like you just, oh, I got to say something about that. What do you guys have? Can we talk about the very last thing that Barbie does? Sure. So thinking about, um, and I was thinking about some of the comments that we've, you know, that we've already mentioned. And Victoria, I know you you mentioned, right, our CFP bingo card and embodiment. um, That when Barbie decides to return to the real world, the last thing we see her do in the movie is walk up to the reception desk at the gynecologist. So this idea of full embodiment. So going into the real world and experiencing, um, yeah, in spirit experiencing not incarnational. Cause I think that's going to get us sort of down a different rabbit hole, but this idea of, you know, of being fully realized of being a, you know, being a woman means being in relationship to one's body and, in particular to that medical specialty, I found really fascinating. And I wondered what you all thought about it. I thought it was the perfect, the perfect ending because so much of, I mean, I think you could say it's a critique of Gnosticism of thinking that, you know, that that what you do or say in the body or your body, or it it doesn't matter. It's not significant that embodiment doesn't matter, but it does matter. And, um, we're going to do a show uh, later on sex realist feminism. And that's the core issue behind that is that you can't just go like, Oh, it doesn't matter that I have a female body, you know, um, gender is a construct. Yeah. Gender is a construct, but sex is not a construct. There are legitimate real physical differences between men and women's bodies, you know, and we don't live in a plastic world uh, that we get to create according to our own, you know, desires or needs. Um, At least I felt like that, that line really said, you know, know it, we're, we're embodied, we're limited. And this is part of what it means to, to be a woman. It's kind of like when Barbie sees the older woman in the park, we haven't talked about that scene. Um, and she says, you're, you're beautiful. And she says, I know. Yeah, that was, yes, that was lovely. And I, I also thought that line was wonderful because that woman in the real world responded to a compliment the way that Barbies in Barbie land respond to compliments. Like when, when they are praised, they don't deflect when when the kids when when the kids take over they start to deflect um and that that hit me right in the heart when uh the first moment where she was like oh it wasn't really i didn't do much i was like i relate to that too much like 
I'm I'm really yes. trying to work on something that I'm uh, trying to get better at in the second half of my 30s is um, is recognizing my accomplishments as accomplishments. Yes. And it, it's something that yes. I think really is socialized out of us as women. Yes. Um, and especially yes. as Christian women, too, because I think we are rightly taught to try to avoid the sin of pride, but that for women in our society, that is often overstated as to, like, oh, you can't take credit for anything, ever. Yes. Yes, and we know that that's true, and we've had a lot of episodes, uh, you know, in our the Christian Feminist Podcast about just that thing, you know, that that kind of uh, the difficulty in being a Christian woman and being enculturated to to think of yourself as more sacrificing yourself all the time, uh, you know, for others and their needs, and and because well, Jesus did that, except that it's a different expectation when it's placed on women's shoulders, and we we uh, internalize it differently, and so can't ever take credit for the accomplishments that we have, um, that we've made. And so I, the way it hit me was, you know, Nobel prize winning Barbie goes, I've written a book, you know, and I have one of the people in my writing group who is not going up for promotion, even though the rest of us think that she should. So I said to her, you've written a book, you know, it's like, it's like, we just have to kind of like be there for each other, uh, in that kind of, in this constantly deflecting culture. No, I th- I think that's that's true. I don't I don't have anything to to add to that. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been a really great conversation. I don't want to leave anybody out. If there's something else that you're just like, oh, I have to say something about. Please speak now, or we're going to move on to passing on. Um, I do want to say one more thing um, about the the Ruth Handler line that really troubled me. Okay. Um, the the thing that she says in the I I guess we're all calling it the ghost kitchen now. Um, the thing that she says in the <laughs> ghost kitchen about um, mothers standing back so that daughters can move ahead of them. I that didn't sit right with me, and and maybe mm. I was maybe I was supposed to read it as kind of a a thought of a bygone era, I'm not sure. But I think particularly in light of um, America Ferreira's character and her daughter, that the thing that her daughter learns is that her mother still has things to teach her, that her mother is an interesting, varied, nuanced portrayal of womanhood that she should listen to. Right. Um, so right. I, I kind of... Inside the movie that was telling us that, that Ruth Handler line, um, I don't know. I didn't, I didn't love it. That's a great observation because the rest of the movie was super sensitive to that issue. And so much so that some of us were, I don't have a daughter, but who do, were tearing up, you know, relating to this kind of moment of my daughter doesn't like me, doesn't know me, doesn't think we're the same. And the movie clearly addressed that. So you're right there that 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 particular line kind of bounces off bad. And I I maybe I should sort of think about it as what was it trying to say and I think it was trying to say that um one generation's concerns are not the next generation's concerns and that's probably a good thing. 
Um, I mean, I, 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 see. I have conversations with my mother all the time about, um, particularly about my marriage where, you know, we work really hard to, um, share household labor and we work hard to take an interest in each other's interests and, and things that I think women of an earlier generation, um, would not have expected their husbands to do. And, and we have that conversation a lot. And, and I think that just means that social progress sometimes happens on, um, levels that are, that are more apparent personally and, and less apparent systemically. Um, so, so maybe that's what that line was trying to say. And I should, I should give it the benefit of the doubt a little bit more. If it pings for you, it pings for you, you know, and there's, there's a, there's a reason for it. Did that line ping for you, Sarah? Uh, not in the way that Victoria describes. Um, although I, I definitely see your reading of that line, Victoria, and, and your reasons for not loving it. I, I had understood it in the moment as a discussion about, you know, or as a commentary on, uh, generational differences, um, sort of broadly conceived. And so it sort of, it, it, sort of flowed past me without giving me much pause, but I might've still been laughing about Matchbox 20. Unless that <laughs> happened before Matchbox 20. Um, my, my timeline of events is getting a, a little bit, uh, is getting a little bit muddled um, at this point. Yeah, but there's a lot, there's just a ton in the film. Yeah. And maybe too much. I remember reading one um, article that just said it was just, it's just too much. And um, I, I didn't, find that unsympathetic right I was like yeah you know I kind of understood that um like maybe uh pink too much pink ice cream and pink chocolate cake or something uh, you know what I'm saying too much too smart mm -hmm. I don't know but I think it's time to pass on so are we ready to pass on yes sure okay Sarah what are you passing on all right today I'm passing on an article from Leah Labresco Sargent's uh, Substack Other Feminisms, which we've talked about on the podcast before. She wrote her own review of the Barbie movie that takes a slightly different approach to the viewing of the film, and it's called For Barbie, the Winning Move is Not to Play. So that's my recommendation this time around. Thank you, Sarah. Victoria? Um, I'm going to recommend a documentary that lots of reviews of Barbie mention. Um, it's called um, Tiny Shoulders, and it really breaks down um, the kind of social reaction to Barbie. Um, what does she say to us about us? Is it anti-feminist? Um, what is the responsibility of a toy to kind of speak to political movements? Um, there's a lot of really wonderful uh, people in the documentary. Gloria Steinem um, talks about Barbie as being a, a kind of flashpoint for the second wave movement. Um, lots of 
rallying cries of we are not Barbie dolls and things like that. Um, and there's a bit of discussion of how Barbie has physically uh, evolved over time as well. So if, if you're interested in the background, um, the background to the speech at the high school um, where Barbie kind of gets depressed, she realized she's let all the girls down uh, watch Tiny Shoulders. Those are great recommendations. Thank you very much. And I am going to recommend something that's going to become relevant, especially later on. If we do this show, a website called Fair Disputations about sex, realist feminism for the 21st century. Just a lot of interesting things to talk about, particularly if you're interested in the bingo card embodiment thing that both Victoria and I constantly talk about. So that's my recommendation. All right. Well, thank you for listening to the Christian Feminist Podcast. We would love to hear from you. If you have a topic or reading recommendations for future shows, or if you just want to drop us a line, you can do so at christianfeministpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find us on our Facebook page or at the network's Twitter handle at CH Radio Network. And check out the show notes from this and the other episodes at the Christian Humanist blog at christianhumanist.org. The Christian Feminist Podcast is a member of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Kristen Philippic is our press liaison. For Sarah and Victoria, I'm Christina Bieber-Lake. Tune in in two weeks when we'll discuss the Southern Baptist Convention treatment of female pastors. You won't want to miss that one. Until then, in essentials unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things love.